126th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to motor trend essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Peter King. The all-time great NFL writer whose career has taken him from Cincinnati to New York to Sports Illustrated and now to NBC Sports, where he writes the popular Football Morning in America feature. Peter's been a colleague for many moons, and he's one of the first sports writers to, through talent and drive, create his own brand. So I thought we'd talk about that, as well as busting with John Madden, hanging with Brett Favre, and growing older in a job with the clients never age. It's a fascinating chat, and it starts right now on Two Writers, Singing Yang. All right, so, uh, Peter, we're sitting here on your balcony in New York. Your dog Chuck is back here. Your dog attacked me <laughs> in a positive way. <laughs> so we're two, uh, we're two ex-Sports Illustrated guys. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking. I mean, there's a, I feel like there's a, uh, I don't know if you feel this way. Like, you, you worked in Cincinnati. You worked in Newsday. I feel like there's a unique kinship among people from Sports Illustrated. There's just like this, like, uh, you know, like this. Yeah. I don't know. Like, how do you feel about everything that's happened? We just talked about us like going uh, monthly now. And how do you feel about this all? Um, you know, Jeff, I, I am. I'm really sad about the whole thing. But I am totally not surprised about the whole thing. Because from 2013 to 2018, I ran the MMQB. Uh, the the microsite covering the NFL uh, for Sports Illustrated. And each of the five years, I would go out and basically go out for about three weeks and go out and try to get ads for the site. That was part of my job. I actually didn't mind it. It got you to understand the business as it exists today. So by the end of it, I was, you know, there's one one of these times uh, I got a call from the ad department uh, that, hey, listen, on Thursday, we're meeting with uh, Honda or, or Nissan or somebody in Torrance, California. This is like a Tuesday night. This really is a good possibility. Do you think you could come? So I woke up Thursday morning. I flew to L.A. We had a meeting for like an hour and a half. I got back on a plane and flew home. And we didn't get the business. And, and that's... I mean, the first year or so, we made, I don't know, six or seven million dollars on trips like that. Uh, we had four cornerstone sponsors. And the last year, uh, we just, we hardly had any sponsorship. And it was, it was, I could see out in the marketplace that people did not really love a print product and they, they already had enough to buy at places like ESPN that they really had no interest in, you know, spending money on a website that also wanted you to spend money on the print product because nobody really wanted to advertise in Sports Illustrated at the end. That was my experience. Now, maybe things are changing. It doesn't seem like it, but I, I, all I can do is hope for the best as you do. So my thing has always been the website. They really ignored the website when they shouldn't have. And that it could have been, it's almost like, except for MMQB, it was hard to navigate. 
the vault was terrible and it should have been their strength. There are a lot of real shortcomings of the website. But is it is it just does it just come down to print is dying quickly and there's nothing you can do about that and you can do whatever you want to the magazine. Like you can't save them. I remember when Michael McCambridge did a long story for the Ringer on Sports Illustrated. You know, I talked to him a little bit about it, and I tried to make this point to him because I think he was looking for all the reasons why it failed. Like they were all logical. They're not all logical. Um, there are some that are emotional that are involved in this, and there are also some that have to do with long-standing business practices that Sports Illustrated didn't take advantage of. The biggest of which, obviously, was the failure to align with ESPN three or f- three decades ago, I guess. But, but be that as it may, I just think right now, I still get the New York Times at my door every morning in Brooklyn. And uh, I read it. My wife and I sit there at the table for 45 minutes every morning awesome. without fail. And we read the paper. We're, I'm 62. She's 61. We're a vanishing breed. Yeah. We just are. And at this point, I understand that probably eight or 10 years from now, everything I read is going to be on the laptop. I, I, there's something about that that bothers me, but that's just the way it is. When I go talk to colleges right now, college kids, Jeff, a lot of times are high school kids. I basically say, listen, you have to train yourself to be a journalist and to be a storyteller. That is what you have to train to do. Where you do it, how you do it, the mode in which you do it. I don't know what that is. I can't answer that. Nobody can answer that. But there's always going to be room for storytellers. When my Walter Payton book came out like nine years ago, the first place I wanted an excerpt was SI, and it got on the cover. And that was like, holy crap, I have a cover excerpt on Sports Illustrated. And nowadays, if you said to me, all right, you can have a cover excerpt on Sports Illustrated, or it can be excerpted on Bleacher Report. <laughs> You're going with Bleacher Report. It's I so know. insane, yeah. you know? It's just crazy. It's yeah. just crazy. Well, I mean, nothing lasts forever, and... I was with Mark Mulvoy, the uh, old managing editor of SI. We were together this summer, and we were both sort of bemoaning what has happened. But I think we both understand that this is just life. At the end of the day, SI is simply unfit, in my opinion, to be the New Yorker. Okay? And there are just too many ways to get too many great stories instantaneously you know now versus what it was years ago and so I understand that everybody wants to read the great Gary Smith, Frank DeFord Jeff Perlman giant story. Don't belong in that group come on but they want to read these great long form stories and so do I but I'll tell you the athletic is damn good um, yeah. And they have so many good people there, and they do. They have so many good ideas. I love some of the things that they do, and so there's so many ways to get great stories out there that I think writing a lyrical, wonderful, incredibly well-researched story about a football game and reading it five days later is just not life today. It yeah. just isn't, you know. I'll never forget when Tom Brady won Sportsman of the Year. This would have been like 15 years ago, as incredible as that sounds, or 14 years ago. I will never forget, I was at the ceremony in New York. Tom Brady was there along with his parents. 
And his dad said to me, because I had something to do with him getting sportsman, I, I advocated for him, because that particular year, he gave up a bunch of salary for them to go do stuff in free agency. And that, and not only was he winning Super Bowls, but he was being Albert Schweitzer, too, yeah. you know, to some degree. But anyway, we talked that day, and his dad said to me, you know, Tommy, uh, you know, this award means so much to Tommy because when he was a kid, you know, a lot of times he'd come home from school in the Thursday, on a Thursday in the fall and he said, hey, does I have anything about the Niners? Yeah. There's not a kid in America who comes home. First of all, not many coming home on a bike anymore from yeah, school. Right, right, right. But there's not many kids in America who come in and say, hey, did SI come today? Or, you know, just so, so things change. Yeah. You mentioned you're 62. I'm 47. Aging as a sports writer is a very interesting thing because the clientele stays the same age yeah. and you keep getting older. And, like, you're still covering the NFL. Kyler Murray is 42 years younger than you or 41 years younger than you. You want to know what Kyler Murray said to me when I met him for the first time? Yeah. He said, I know you. I've seen you on the internet. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, my he God. He said that to me this <laughs> yeah, summer. Thanks, kid. It was cute. It was cute. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but... Is it weird getting... Yes, I'm experiencing that now basically a lot. And I, I'm not angry about it. I'm not... I have never wanted... Look, one of the great things about Sports Illustrated... In 1990 or 91, I went to cover the Cowboys when they were starting to get good. Yeah. And Michael Irvin saw me. I introduced myself to him, and he goes, "Man, we're in a Sports Illustrated game this week." Oh wow! And he it was he was really excited. Right. And we fast forward to today, whatever, almost 30 years later. And I went to cover the Rams over the weekend after they make this Jalen Ramsey trade. And even though I did a podcast with Jalen Ramsey this summer, Jalen Ramsey had zero interest in doing the podcast. Zero interest. He may have known who I was or, or may have remotely cared, but not really. And, you know, Jalen Ramsey, what he wants to do is he wants to be on TV with Deion Sanders. You know, yeah. or or he wants to go do the ESPN interview, which is all well and good. And I totally, totally get it. But times have changed where, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated near the end of my tenure there, it, it didn't have much cachet anymore in the business. And as far as the aging part of it, you know, I think, Jeff, I've accepted it as a bit of a challenge now. How so? And I and I enjoy it. The challenge is, okay, I don't get all the doors open for me anymore. Because and I did wasn't even uh, getting all the doors open at the end with Sports Illustrated because times have changed. The world has changed. And so I find myself in some ways like going back and trying to do some stories the way I would have done them a long time ago when no one had any idea who I was. You know, you just have to work different angles and you have to do stories in a little bit of a different way. You know, would it have been great if I could have gotten 20 minutes with Jalen Ramsey to be able to ask him, you weren't really hurt, were you? Um, you shot your way out of town, didn't you? But that wasn't going to happen. So I decided to do a story that basically, you know, in some ways 
getting 20 minutes with Jalen Ramsey would have been like a sugar rush. You know, the quotes would have been blown out for three or four hours, and then it's over. Yeah. But what I ended up doing was saying, why are teams trading so much in the NFL now when they used to not? Right. What has happened? What's happened to the landscape in football? And to me, that's more valuable because it's actually teaching people something and telling them why I think that there are more trades now, a lot more than there used to be. So that's one of the reasons I don't mind it. I, 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 en- I kind of enjoy not walking in and doing the absolute obvious thing that everyone in the world, everyone wants to hear from Jalen Ramsey. Well, that wasn't going to be possible in this case. So I did something else and I like what I did. So like someone like Jalen Ramsey is like, I don't really have time or blah, blah. Is there any ever impulse in you to like, I've been doing this for X number of years, 40 years. Are you joking? Like, are you kidding me? Or no? Are you just like, eh? I don't really think that way because why should Jalen Ramsey look at me and say, I have to take 15 minutes out of my life to talk to this guy? I just don't feel like we should be catered to like that. I just never have. And again, if people do give me that time, and if they are going to be that good to me and all that other stuff, I appreciate it. But I never have thought that uh, we somebody should lay down a red carpet for us. Mainly because, Jeff, I mean, my first, I don't know, eight, nine years in the business before I got to SI... I, I mean, I remember covering the New York Giants and George Young told me one time, the general manager of the Giants, the late GM, he said, you know, nothing personal, but I'm treating you the exact same as I treat the guy from the Asbury Park Press. Huh. Yeah, I was at Newsday. I like that. He treated the New York Times and the New York Post and the Daily News and the Asbury Park and the Newsday the same as the Asbury Park Press. You know, the Daily Record in Morris County, the Hartford Current, the Bridgeport Post. And I kind of like that. I think that that's fair because if I was at the Bridgeport Post, I would want George Young to treat me and give me the same amount of time as you give the New York Times. Most people don't feel that way. But I think it is a good, I think it's good uh, for our business that everybody is on equal footing. And again, who am I to talk? I have not been on equal footing most of my career because SI opened so many doors. I mean, I I got in a bus, I rode a bus across country for three days with John Madden. You know, all these incredible things I've gotten to do. But I don't mind now that the tables have turned a bit. And I I still get to do a lot of things that that a lot of other people in the business don't get to do. So I've got nothing to complain about. November 26, 1990, Busman's Holiday. Coast-to-coast commuter John Madden likes what he sees as he rolls across America in his sweet on wheels. Your lead was, John Madden, 54, has a job most of us would love to have. He sleeps as late as he wants and wears whatever clothes he wants almost every day of his life. He eats what he wants, when he wants. He has to be somewhere with a tie on for only three hours a week. He makes much more than a million dollars a year. To do this job, he crisscrosses the U.S. six months a year in the greatest bus you've ever seen. It is a hotel suite on wheels. So you drove around with John Madden on his yeah, bus. Yeah. Um, it's a great, great story. Like, What do you remember about that experience? How did that even come to be? I... I had been asking him and his his agent, Sandy Montag, if I could do this. I really wanted to do it. And I got along with Madden. He was a really nice guy. So it finally happened. And there were a lot of ground rules. But one of the ground rules that ended up being really tough is that 
at the time he had two bus drivers Dave Hahn and Willie Yarbrough and you just remember that because you remember that I just remember it for some reason uh-huh. and uh, John did not want the photographer on the bus so we could take pictures but only like when he stopped and we could take some portraits when you know on the bus at various times but it just wasn't ideal because the the photographer bill frakes had to drive behind us and in the western part of the united states in 1990 i don't know what it's like now but these guys just drove 90 miles an hour no one ever stopped a bus that had john madden that they knew was carrying john madden right so bill frakes unfortunately was in this was in this van with uh with his assistant and it was hard for him to keep up and remember no cell phones in those days yeah so we were having a real hard time coordinating this thing but i just remember logistically it sucked because there were times where i had no idea where freaks was that's awesome and it was and and they had to catch up and all that but there's one other story that i always remember about that we're driving near Kearney, nebraska on i80 and at one point madden says stop the bus we pull over to the side of the road and there are some like fire red flowers along this hillside right next to the interstate and madden opens up a drawer and in the drawer is this what looks like a guidebook and it says wildflowers across america and he opened it up and he was like fascinated he spent like 10 minutes looking through it and he said ah that's what this is and whatever the name of the flower was Uh and he got out and i said i said to him i am going to totally ruin your reputation i am going to tell everyone that you like flowers more than football and he got a great kick out of it but madden was a genuinely curious guy and it was not a show for instance he talked a lot about travels with charlie and john steinbeck and growing up in california and really wanting to see what the whole world was like and how in many ways this fear of flying turned out to be so great for him because he got to go to restaurants in nowheresville united nowheresville united states yeah and where he actually got to know the people he had favorite restaurants in elko nevada and in all these other places all these different places and it just that was a really cool story to do when you're driving along like you're with him are there certain things you're looking for like i guess when you're with the subject in general are you looking for the humanity is that sort of what you're looking for i remember on that story looking to see what he was like when he was kind of out with the people he was precisely like he is and how he seems on tv not biff bam boom yeah not that but he just he just like talked to everybody we're in his restaurant in elko nevada that was sort of like a a big boy type restaurant just a hamburger place and in the back there was a card table set up with a hand-drawn sign that said sportsbook and there's a woman back there who is sitting at this card table taking bets and legally you're in nevada and i remember packers were playing the lions that week some guy comes up to him and says hey john hey great to meet you and everything hey i'm from 
Oshkosh. Uh, who do you like Packers lines? Oh, I love the Packers this week. And then the guy comes up to him and he goes, hey, John, hey, how you doing? I'm from, I'm from Ypsilanti. Uh, who do you like Packers lines? I mean, people asked him about a lot of games right. in the span of an hour and a half. And uh, when the Ypsilanti guy comes up or wherever, Ann Arbor, Dearborn, he goes, oh, I like the Lions this week. And I said to him, basically, why did you do that? Right. That's not, I, I thought, that's not cool, you know? Yeah. And he goes, I don't know who's going to win the game. And I get asked things like that all the time when I'm going across country. And I study this game as much as anybody does. I truly don't know who's going to win the game. So if I don't know who's going to win the game, and I think it's almost 50-50, why wouldn't I make the guy from Wisconsin happy? Hey, Madden thinks we're going to win this weekend. Why wouldn't I make the guy from Michigan happy? And I just said, all right, I get that. I mean... Straight, a little bit strange, but I kind of understood it. But that was that was kind of a window into him because he, I think he, I think John Madden understands that a guy who pays attention to football, a really big football fan, knows almost as much as he does about who's going to win on Sunday. Do you feel the same way about yourself? Yes, absolutely. I never bet on football. I have I just I wouldn't ever do it. I just I don't know. But when someone comes up to you and like, "Hey, Peter Redskins Giants." Oh, oh, I tell them what I really think, but I laugh about it and I said, "I you know, asking me who's going to win this game, I mean, my opinion is meaningless." Right. And do I know 3% more than you? Yes. But it's it's just the football is oddly shaped and it takes funny bounces and I, I don't know how you predict who's going to win these games. My biggest gripe about the NFL is that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have never gone back to the cream schools full time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Best uniform in I, NFL history. No, I think th- those are among the worst uniforms oh, come in NFL on. history. What? They stink. They stink. I hate that color. Can you imagine coming in and having to put those on? It's like now if you walk in and you see like the Chicago Bears uh, throwback uniform or the Steelers, yeah. you know, with, or the Packers. You know, they aren't throwback uniforms. They're throw-up Or the uniforms. Jets when they were wore the uh, Titan uniforms. Oh, yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, they're terrible. It's funny. Anyway. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my sister-in-law, Leah, who actually likes me more than her sister. That's not true. No, I'm pretty sure it's true. Really? It's not. I don't even like you. My family doesn't even like you. We don't approve of you. We've never approved of you. You have chronic nasal drip, no eyebrows, and you fart when you walk. You haven't had a job in forever. The hair growing out of your ears looks increasingly like radish leaves. In fact, you remind me of a bag of cat vomit. Only the cat has vomited, died, and fallen into the bag of its own vomit. It's that bad. What if I told you our sponsor, 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, is willing to hook you up with your very own Danny Bugs Tampa Bay Bandits jersey? All I've got to do is go to 503-sports.com and pick it out. Well, in that case, you're the cousin I've always wanted. Wait, you mean brother, right? Yeah, whatever. You've done something really impressive, I feel like, which... All right, so at some point in my career, when I started writing books, and I had a website and a podcast and blah, 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 people were like, wow, you really built a brand, right? I never thought of it that way. still don't think of it that way. But I feel like you have factually built a brand. You are Peter King. You could take your brand from Sports Illustrated to NBC... You are known for this thing. You do it every week. You're consistent. You're really good, blah, 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 blah. Do you view yourself as a brand or what you do as a brand to a certain degree? I mean, 
I don't see that at all. I mean, I'm happy. I, I find, I'll tell you what I find strange. Here's what I find strange. The night before the Rams played the Falcons, I'm at a bar in Buckhead in Atlanta with Kevin Demoff, the COO of the Rams, and Les Snead, the general manager of the Rams. And we're in a corner and just sitting there having this conversation for an hour and a half or so. And at one point, this guy comes up to me and he says, hey, Peter, really love your stuff. Hey, uh, love your love your writing, whatever. And I don't know, 15 minutes later, another guy comes up and says, hey, Peter, love your stuff and all that. And I just said to both, I mean, here is a guy uh, who I don't, I'm not sure whether Les Snead's been executive of the year, but if not, he's been in competition for it. And here's the guy who helps Stan Kroenke get a $5 billion stadium built. And I mean, I can see where people may not know Kevin Demo, but to me, Les Snead is a pretty recognizable NFL general manager. Not that... NFL general managers altogether are altogether recognizable, but I find that to be odd when things like that happen because I view myself and always have viewed myself as a vehicle for trying to take you somewhere where you can't go. I understand that being on TV and being at Sports Illustrated and all that is going to get you this higher profile. I get it. I accept it. It's been great. I've loved it. But at the end of the day, I just view myself still as that guy whose job is to take you places where you can't go and tell you things that you didn't know. Did you ever, because um, I obviously I wrote a biography of Brett Favre. Yeah. And you covered Favre really closely. Yeah. Um, I feel like there was a perception when I was researching a book, you know, Peter King was, or vice versa, was a he Favre was Favre's guy. guy. Yeah, Favre's he was guy. Favre's guy, yeah. Number one. Did that bother you? And number two, was there any fairness to it in hindsight? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing that really bothers me to this day. And I'm I'm mad at myself for it because it was my fault. On the time that he basically handed Michael Strahan the sack record when he when he dove at the line of scrimmage. uh, I saw him the next week. And he absolutely, totally defended himself and said, I did not take a dive. I, you know, I, I don't know what people are saying. I forget his what he said, but he was adamant that Strahan sacked him. And I wrote his, his denial yeah. about it. And I didn't question it. I just wrote his denial. Did you think to yourself, this is bullshit? Or no, did you not even get that far mentally? Uh... I thought to myself at the time, well, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Maybe I I might be wrong about this. He is so insistent that he's not guilty as charged. And but looking back now, I can see why anybody who would read that or anybody who would say that would say that's nonsense. Wake up, man. Come on. Smell the coffee. Get out of Favre's uh, back pocket and and tell the truth. That bothers me. But honestly, Jeff, most most of the rest of the stuff, and there's a couple of things I can't say, I can't talk about, but I don't have, other than that right there, I have not one moment of my relationship with Brett Favre that I ever would apologize for. And quite honestly, I admire people who get close to subjects 
because I know how difficult it is yeah. to get close to subjects. Um, but I also admire people who don't get close to subjects and still are able to do stuff. Like, for instance, the book, your book on Favre had some great stuff in it about Favre. Obviously, a lot of it that was not complimentary. But, you know, you also celebrated who Brett Favre was. Yeah. You know, you it was a... You can do both. Was, of course. Yeah. It, was a, it was a 360 degree look at Brett Favre. And I think the one thing that I would say about all that is my job in 1995 and 1998 and 2002 and everything is to form a relationship, an honorable relationship with the best player in football as much as I can and to do everything I can to be able to maintain access to this guy while also being honorable and true to the profession and the two people who I feel like I have I have done that with really are Favre and and, and Brady and uh, to some degree Manning but I certainly didn't have the sort of exclusive thing with Manning that I've had with those other two guys but and and I guess the one other one other point about all of it is that I've been on the other side of the story a lot where some other guy will get the story who covers football or some other woman will get the story who covers football never once in my life have I said F that guy or F her for getting this or uh, they, they they're only getting this because of X, Y, and Z it's you know it's the big leagues you gotta do everything you can to get the best stories you can and if somebody else does better than you tip your cap also like I always think like uh, I remember because my book and I talked to you about it when before the Packers and the Broncos played in the Super Bowl I think you had dinner with Favre the day before yeah. and you gave the scene of Favre at dinner and people can whine they can complain oh Favre why is he having to like your job period is to take us somewhere we can't go. Yeah. To take us to dinner with Brett Favre before the Super Bowl. Like, that's that's it. That's your job right there. Yeah. So I just think a lot of times people forget the job here is to show people what they can't see for themselves. Jeff, I just don't spend a lot of time, uh, I guess, and, I, and this is the wrong way to put it, I don't spend a lot of time raging against the machine. Right. Because... You can always be pissed off about something or think that some guy has an edge that you don't or some woman has an edge. And I, I just, I never think about, I never think of it that way just because, you know, I, I, I try the best I can to do as good a job as I can. And if I miss a story, I don't do a good job or somebody decides they want somebody else to do it, good. There's a lot of good people in the business. Would you rather cover Super Bowl or um, Bills-Lions week 13 where there's not that much competition around but you get a lot of access? Well, I think the Super Bowl has totally gotten out of control as far as it's everything but a football game. And so... You know what I did last year for the first time? And this is a long-winded way of saying Bill's Lions yeah. Week 13. Yeah. But you know what I did last year? Super Bowl was in Atlanta. I was really, really tired at the end of the year last year. I don't know why, but I just was. 
And so I decided, like, on the Saturday before I left for the Super Bowl, that on Wednesday afternoon, I'm going to fly home. And I'm going to go back Friday night to a dinner I had to go to. And I spent 36 hours um, sitting in my apartment in New York and two nights in a row going to bed at like nine o'clock and taking my wife out to dinner on Thursday night and, and everything. And it was so humane. I loved it. Was there any part of you that felt like uh, no. missing out? No, because no. you're not missing anything. Yeah. You're missing the press conference with whoever the, the singer is going to be at halftime. Right. Uh, and I'm exaggerating. You do miss some things. One of the things that you do in the soup, in a Super Bowl week is you spend some time having coffee with John Doe, the GM of whoever, you know? Right. And so... I, I didn't feel at all like I missed something. I felt a lot better when I went back and was all kind of rejuvenated. But here's the only other thing I would say. I'm probably not going to do this anymore because I think it's only fair to share it. But I did the uh, pool reporter for one team at the Super Bowl nine times. And for those who don't understand that, the NFL allows one reporter per team per year to watch their practices and write up a very sanitized pool report about who practiced, who didn't, a couple of colorful anecdotes maybe from the practice. But you can't talk about strategy. You can't talk about what you saw out there with how, uh, you know, trick plays or anything like that. So basically I did that nine times. And what I found is that I always could go back after the game and ask one of the players on the team that I covered during the week, boy, what, what did you think of when you were doing this at practice or whatever? And the best example is that I watched Peyton Manning uh, condition 128 footballs. On Friday, he had 16 people, equipment guys, two security guys uh, at the Miami Dolphins practice facility. Um, he had, and he, and he was out there for like an hour and a half after practice, just working on the footballs, um, you know, scuffing them up, everything like that. Because at the Super Bowl, you got so many footballs that are going to be used as potentially as game balls because you might throw a football, it's a completion, and they throw it out of play and give it to a sponsor because somebody will pay $8,000 for a game-used Super Bowl football. Right. You know, the NFL has all the angles. So uh, those are the kind of things that really turn out to be, do you want to know, do you want to understand how much of a football nerd Peyton Manning is, how all-controlling, how anal he is? Well, here's an example. He spent an hour and a half conditioning the footballs with everybody from a, a PR intern to a, a police officer from Fort Lauderdale, you know? And so that's kind of, those are the kind of things that, I mean, okay, so I did those those weeks. It's four hours a day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I, I love doing that because it actually felt like you were covering a football game right. rather than all the other stuff. Wait, I was wondering, are there, so here, here we are, right? We're sitting on your balcony. Yeah. You're in Brooklyn. You've had this amazing career and you've done TV and you've done this and blah, 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 like a million things. And I always think like when you're a young writer, like I was at the Tennessean starting my career at the Tennessean and all I want to do is get to Sports Illustrated, right? I'm sure all you want to do is cover the NFL and all your dreams, all your journalism dreams have come true. Do you ever think 
of the pure joy that was being a beat writer of the New York Giants at Newsday when you were just up and coming and young and kind of innocent about it all? Like, was there, is there anything back then maybe you didn't appreciate that you should have appreciated in hindsight? Jeff, I think the, the one thing about that job, if you consider that it happened between 85 and 88, think about this. You know, I used to wake up in my little town in New Jersey and, you know, we had two very young children at the time. But um, I remember getting up at 530 and going to the newspaper store and buying like six papers. Um, And I'll never forget just, I mean, really the joy of knowing that I beat Bill Varigan of the Daily News or I beat Hank Gola or I beat Frank Litsky of the Times, you know, or I had something that they didn't have. So I won today so I could be happy. But it was a daily, I mean, when you're a beat person, you have to take joy in the little victories and I used to take immense joy. It always really meant something to me. Whenever I was competing with somebody, I never would say, hey, I had this and you didn't. It's just something that you know inside right. that you have. And I that was a tremendously fun part of this. It's different today. It's much different today. But, you know, recently I... I got Brett Favre to go to uh, Kansas City to sit down with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. We spent 45 minutes watching tape. And that's one of the things that, I mean, just the pure ability to be able to convince three extremely high-profile people in our business to take, for Favre, to take more than half a day, you know, to come to from Hattiesburg to... Uh, uh, to Kansas City and to do that. And then, you know, Andy Reid, they ended up, I, I, I was going to get 35 or 40 minutes. I was I was with Mahomes and Reid and Farr for, I'd say, over two hours, in part because they were having a ball. Patrick Mahomes, this is a day off for Mahomes, and he was having a ball doing this. But those are the things that, you know, it used to be the little beat writery things where, hey, I got, I know who they're signing in free agency, or I know this undrafted free agent who's going to make the roster. And I, you know, those are the little things. If you're a competitive person, you can always find something, you know, like, I'm really happy I was able to do that thing with Far Mahomes and Reed, and it's cool to me. I don't need to see it splashed all over everything. Yeah. There's just this personal satisfaction knowing that, okay, I did a pretty good job here. And that really is enough for me. I was a high school wrestling writer at the Tennessee. Wow. And all I wanted to do was write the best freaking high school wrestling story, right? <laughs> and I've never found any, like the the modern, like, first to tweet out. All right. It just doesn't replicate yeah, joy you're right. breaking something or having something come out in print and knowing you knowing you beat the Nashville banner right. in some story. You just don't... You know what? I'll, I, this is interesting. One of the things that I did on the Giants beat had nothing to do with the Giants. I was also covering the NFL at the time. I mean, it's weird. You work for a New York City paper at, and a Long Island paper. You work for them... And you're covering the New York Giants, which is a big beat. And you're also covering the NFL. 
what was so interesting is that I forget what year it was. I wrote a profile on Joe Gibbs, and I just asked Newsday. I said, I just want two days, two days. That's all I want to devote all of my energy to this story. And uh, I went and I got half hour with Gibbs. Uh, Jack Kent Cook was the owner at the time. And I'll never forget, I wrote this, I don't know, 1,500-word story on Joe Gibbs in Newsday. It was right at the start of a season. And when the Giants played Washington, the PR guy said, Mr. Cook would like to see you. Oh, boy. And so... I went into Jack Kent Cook's box before a Giants-Washington game, and I walk into the box, and he sees me, and he goes, Peter King? I said, yes. And he goes, young man, you did a fine story on Coach Gibbs. Very, very good. Very well-researched, well-written. I said, oh, thank you very much. And he said the following words, that is all. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. In other words, okay, yeah, I've had enough of you. Off, off with you. Yeah. Yeah, that is all. <laughs> you know, but anyway, those are the kind of things that I don't know. I don't know why I remember that so much, but I do remember that I got to the bottom of what made Joe Gibbs a competitive person. And to this day, I, I just I'm proud of that because and I'm not saying that somebody from the Washington Post would read that and and say, oh, my God, there's nine things in here that we want, but or that I wish we wrote. But you know what? I think there were nine things in there that the Washington yeah. Post would say, I wish we wrote. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember like you would, I did um, when I was at the Tennessee and they sent me to do a big paid Manning story when he was at Tennessee. Yeah, it was my first big, big, like 4000 word newspaper story. And SI came out the same week. Tim Layden did a big Peyton Manning story. And all you wanted to do was beat the SI story. <laughs> of you know, course. All you wanted to yeah. do was beat the SI story. And when you, Tim Layden wasn't probably reading that story I wrote, but like if you had little things he didn't have, it felt like this, like, yeah. I think people, the competition was just, it just did something for you. Yeah. You know, it just did. Yeah. yeah. That is, it's so exciting to me. And, like I was recently talking to someone and advising her on a job. Uh, and I really thought that she should take this job, and the job was a beat writing job. And and she said, I don't know. I you know she liked the job she had right now. She ended up not taking the job. But the one thing I said was, you're going to be so much better in two years than you are right now because you will have covered a competitive beat and there's something that is so incredibly valuable to that if you're in this business and you know who knows maybe five years from now you're you're not even a sports writer you're writing something else but it's so valuable to be to have to compete with good people on a beat yeah i agree uh let me ask you a final question because i asked this of everyone yeah what is your worst chew out you've ever gotten as a, as a sports writer i would say it would be a tie. Um, one time in an NFL preview I did about the San Francisco 49ers, I called a journeyman guard for the 49ers named Kevin Gogan. Oh, dirtiest player. Uh, yeah. Player, yeah. I called a journeyman guard Kevin Gogan a journeyman. Yeah. And Kevin Gogan approached me the next time I was in the 49ers locker room, and he said, and he just started screaming the word at the top of his lungs. Journeyman, journeyman. Who you call in an effing journeyman? To the point where Kevin Gogan is about 6'8", 340. And he was coming at me like 
if somebody didn't stand in the way, I don't think he was going to punch me or anything, but he really wanted to threaten me and to scare me. No yeah. question about it. Were you scared? A little bit, but I knew at the time that there was no way he could do anything. So yeah. I just had to just basically stand my ground. And I forget exactly what I said, but it was something like, well, you've been on three teams in four or five years. That's, <laughs> that's a journeyman. It's just, it's not a deleterious word. It, no. It's, it's just, it's a fact. It just, you know, it's like people hate the word mediocre. Well, if you're a 500 team, you're mediocre. Right. You know, but anyway, there was that. And there was um, one time that Andy Reid got really mad at me and the specifics of it. A, are not important, and B, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something involving Michael Vick after they signed him. And I just, I could not believe the vo the, the voice and how he just, like, lost his temper, right. you know, on the phone. And honestly, I just basically, I let him go off, and I, you know, we ended the conversation. And then I just called him back after I thought maybe he had cooled off a little bit, which he did. And I got a great relationship with Andy Reid. I would much rather have... And Gogan, the next time I saw him, he was laughing his rear end off. He said, ah, I got you, didn't I? Oh, funny. Um, but I would much rather have a guy tell me that he's mad at me and tell me that I hated what you did because of this than to swallow it and just to give me either flip answers or not talk to me anymore. Yeah, totally. I mean, let's let's have a discussion about it, and and that's why that's why I really really like having relationships with people in which I can tell tell me why you're pissed off because I want to know why why is your dog pissed off, Peter? Uh, because there's somebody in my apartment now. Hey, Chuck, Chuck, come here, hey, Chuck. Come on, Chuck. Good dog. Good dog. No, I agree with you 100%. I'd rather know. Yeah. You're with me. You know? Yeah, exactly. Instead of just basically saying that uh, I'm not going to say anything to you, and uh, and so I'm just not going to give you any good stuff anymore. Right. I mean, you know, and there have been times, look, I had about a 10 or 15-year gap in my relationship with Deion Sanders because... I, I had this kind of relationship with Deion Sanders where I was, I don't know how many people had this. I think I was one of the few. I had his road hotel alias. His name that he used when he checked into road hotels right. as a member of the Falcons or yeah. Cowboys or Niners. And so in those days, before cell phones, you had to call guys in their rooms. Right. And and then his in his last contract in Washington, I think that was his last contract, he basically, uh, I felt like uh, he took advantage of Washington, you know, where... Uh, you know, he wasn't altogether forward with them about his physical status when he signed the contract. But anyway, and I was critical of him for that. And uh, so I didn't talk to him for maybe about 15 years. But I always, I always want the people I write about to know there might come a day. We're getting along great now. And I'm writing a lot of cool things and talking about you in a laudatory way. There might come a day when I unload on you. Right. 
that's just the way the business is. You have to, you know, we don't work for the team. So, you know, one time I talked and wrote about how selfish Bruce Smith was, you know, late in his career, only wanting sacks, only wanted to lengthen his lead in the all time sack race, you know, and. I, and so, and I had a good relationship with Bruce, but then not so good anymore. Right. But anyway, those are the kind of things that I think it's important for people to know. Yeah. Well, Peter, I appreciate you letting me sit here on your balcony with you and the dog. Okay. And, yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Seriously. Jeff, thank you very much for coming over. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Peter King, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter underscore King and read his work at NBC Sports. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to True Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.